Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. This is Kim Bumani, episode 53 of the Independent Intel Podcast is finally here. After a month-long hiatus, it's great to be back on the pod. It's great to potentially, might potentially, it's great to get this out to the viewers as soon as possible today. And it's been a long time coming to say the least. Had a lot of trials and tribulations in the past month um, from being a married man now getting COVID after the wedding to scouring the job landscape to potentially upskill myself in the journalistic industry. But here I am, never really um, thought about ever leaving this platform, Independent Intel. It's a it's a baby of mine that me and my wife helped build together the past two years. And, you know, to be 53 episodes in is an extreme blessing. And I'm grateful that it can continue going forward into something even grandiose. And kind of want to get you guys caught up on how I'm doing and how I am before we dive right into the meaty sports topics, because we have a ton from the Kevin Durant saga, NFL football is upon us, such a, is upon us rather, in the name of the preseason. Um, but let's talk about it. Um, returning from a one month absence, like I said, career endeavors, being a newlywed, all things of that nature. I'm still with Pro Football Focus as associate editor. Um, the intern label is officially off. It's been a great experience for yours truly to be able to learn how to be the consummate professional, um, learn the ins and outs of the game, and really just have content that I can have on my resume to potentially have me upskill in the journalistic industry sooner than later on the job market. Um, being a newlywed is phenomenal. Um, very my childhood sweetheart, Jahari Reynolds, now known as Jahari Bomani, and um, that process, uh, the past few weeks, last month, rather, has been an experience. And for it to be solidified and official is a great one at that hat. You know, family and friends there for the wedding. That experience in itself is something I'll never forget. And then last but not least, the future of the podcast. Um, currently, right now, I'm on the Riverside um, <laughs> platform. I've kind of transitioned from Zoom and the end goal is to potentially continue to be on Riverside and invite various guests such as, you know, the regulars, Blue Bloods, Offscript, those my guys. They'll probably be on for sure as we dive into college football season. And then next week I have um, Brian McFadden, co-founder of Legit Football. He's the guy that I was able to kind of network and connect with on LinkedIn. I asked him to potentially be on my one of my episodes, really going to be the next one, episode 54. So we can talk about football. He says he's down to commit. We're going to have that episode for you guys next week. It will be phenomenal to have a new guest on. So really for this platform, continue to build upon what we have on IG, 670 followers so far. I want to kind of segue this platform into the YouTube space. And I, I know for that to happen, um, I'm going to, you know, my assistant, <laughs> uh, my wife, Jar, we're going to work together to kind of make that a reality. So slowly but surely, we want to branch independent until into even higher lows than it is right now when it comes to takes potentially um, having stuff spiced up and seen on the YouTube platform, maybe have those sound bites on IG as well to kind of provide a snippet for listeners to want to tune in. These are all things that we are preparing to dive into when it comes to expanding the brand of independent Intel because it's a phenomenal brand, I might add. We're young, we're up and coming, but it's something that I want to continue to build with as I advance in my young journalistic career. Um, like I, like everybody knows, the podcast will continue to focus on NFL and NBA every week. Um, there's going to be an opportunity that we'll dive into college sports as well, football and basketball. 
I know college football is coming around the corner. And today, rather, we're going to touch base on the SWAC football aspect now. SWAC football, obviously, is the home where of 12 HBCU football programs within the FCS, um, SWAC has gotten a ton of recognition the past year and a half thanks to Deion Sanders gracing the conference and utilizing his marquee and his mystique to bring a brighter spotlight on the conference as a whole. We're going to touch base on that conference and what to look for in terms of teams, players, and things of that nature to wrap it up. But we got to start with the banger. The banger of the week, obviously, the banger of the last few weeks, the banger of last month, this month, continuing. The Kevin Durant Brooklyn Nets saga. Um, Durant announced that he wanted to be traded last month, and a few days ago, him and Brooklyn Nets owner Joe Stye met up to kind of talk about the state of Durant wanting to be traded and potentially what the Nets could do to acquiesce to his demands or kind of talk him off the ledge. But as of now, Durant still wants to be traded despite being under the team's contractual obligation for the next four years. Um, he articulated, though, to the owner of the Nets, Joe Sy, an ultimatum. They can either trade him to wherever, just anywhere but the Nets, trade him to his desired destinations, or if they want him to continue to be a part of the team, fire head coach Steve Nash and general manager Sean Marks. Now, Joe Sy went to Twitter and announced his loyalty to management and the coaching staff of the Nets which ultimately drew a line in the sand when it came to Durant's request. They're not going to fire the guys that Durant wants out of there. Therefore, it seems logically that KD's time with the Nets is winding down to a close. Now, according to Shams, because now that Durant has officially stood firm on his trade request, because prior we heard he wanted to be traded. We heard rumblings about teams he was interested in. But there's always this outside chance that potentially Durant and the Nets could kind of find common ground and run it back potentially with that not being the case currently right now um shams has reported that durant's top three trade suitors are the boston celtics the miami heat and toronto raptors all teams in the eastern conference all teams that were in the eastern conference playoffs a year ago all teams that won more playoff games than the brooklyn Nets <laughs> this past postseason um now look brooklyn's third form on the fact that if durant is traded they're going to want a colossal haul that will inevitably gut somebody else's team. Um, it was rumored weeks ago that Boston offered the Brooklyn Nets a pretty solid trade package surrounded around Jalen Brown, Derek White, and draft picks, but the Nets wanted them to add Marcus Smart in the deal. And Kevin Durant has even gone farther to express that he has a fourth team that he's interested in as well, the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, I saw a few days ago him and James Harden were out in London overseas at a Travis Scott concert. I, there were even clips of them playing with each other on the basketball court, working out, uh, improving the aspects of their games. So it's safe to say that that bridge that we all thought was burned when Harden kind of quit his way out of Brooklyn and Durant felt a type of way about it, that bridge isn't burned anymore. They're still boys, and there's still huge amounts of intrigue when it comes to Durant potentially wanting to play with his homie Harden and a top five player in the NBA known as Joel Embiid. Now, it's opinion time for your boy. All right, I did a great job of recapping everything, got my notes in front of me, did what I had to do, podcast host style. That's what we do over here. Now, what should the Nets do? Look, what I've heard from what I've read from professionals, what I've heard and seen people tweet on Twitter, Twitter is a crazy place, especially when it comes to NBA takes. This narrative that there's a narrative that the media is running with and the, the narrative two narratives that the media are running with when it comes to 
the Nets are. One, Durant not being traded in a timely manner earlier in probably the free agency process is due in large part because Rudy Gobert got dealt to the Minnesota Timberwolves for six players and like five first-round picks. Um, we're going to get to that take later, but I'm going to just go on a limb and jump the gun on it by saying this. I think it's a lazy take overall. And the other aspect is, and this is a good one, Durant, um, dang, I kind of forgot the other aspect. But So let's jump on the first one, which is Gobert's trade from Utah to Minnesota was such an astronomical transaction that it's made Brooklyn kind of up the ante when it comes to potentially dealing Durant and teams just aren't trying to fold for that transaction. And the feeling is if Gobert never would have got dealt for that astronomical number of players and picks, Durant wouldn't be in such a standstill right now when it comes to NBA trade negotiations. I'm going to call Cap and here's why. Kevin Durant is better than Rudy Gobert, even at 33 years old. Kevin Durant, although he did not play particularly well in the first round against the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference playoffs, he is still a top 10 player in today's game. And he's still a guy where if the situation's ideal, he can be the best player on a championship team. And due in large part because of that, he's also under contract for four years. And did I just mention he's 33? So all those parameters, top 10 player, under contract for four years, and he's 33 years old, which means he's at the tail end of his prime. The Nets are going to try to maximize the value that Durant has due to in large part because of who he is as a player, the contract he's under, and the age tag that he has to his name. I do not think Gobert's individual transaction has anything to do with that. I think it has in large part to do with Durant himself. He's that great of a player. If you want him, it's going to come at a premium cost. Now, what I've said early on in this transaction process for teams that were interested in Durant, personally, I would not give up an all-star caliber player who is not in the midst of his prime for Durant. I wouldn't. So when the Minnesota Timberwolves, they were also intrigued in the Kevin Durant sweepstakes before they got Gobert. When the Timberwolves call for Durant, the Nets ask for Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Thames. Now, the Nets, now the Wolves did not oblige. They hung up the phone and completely said, you know what, we're good on the Durant sweepstakes. We're going to go all in on Gobert. A lot of guys on Twitter tried to rationalize the sense of, of it all by saying, I wouldn't trade Anthony Edwards for Durant, but I'd sure trade Carl Anthony Towns for KD. And I'm like, I wouldn't trade either of those dudes for Durant. For a team like the Timberwolves who went to the playoffs, gave Memphis hell, arguably should have won the series, went to six games, they don't need to swap their two best players for a Durant because the chemistry's there. Carl's coming off of a career year. Anthony Edwards is just scratching the surface. They're finally building something in Minnesota behind the post of two all-NBA caliber talents that are all under the age of 28. I'm not giving that up for potentially two years of prime Durant, I, I wouldn't personally do that. And that's why the Boston Celtics element is intriguing. Now, the Celtics do have this going for them. They're intrigued to get Durant, and they offered Jalen Brown early on in the sweepstakes. The reason why is because there's been rumblings that Jalen Brown, who has two years left on his deal, might not resign with Boston. Reasons why, they vary. 
people say he's not a huge fan of the fan base. We know how Boston's fan base has been labeled as from a bunch of individuals, not just from NBA fanatical circles, but sports circles worldwide within that city. They're a pretty rowdy, racist bunch to a lot of individuals. So there's that for Jalen. There's also the aspect of Jalen may want his own team. He's been playing second fiddle to Jason Tatum for the past few years. And the last two seasons, rather, you see a substantial uptick in points per game, field goal percentage, things of that nature. He's starting to come into his own. And maybe two years from now when he's a free agent, somebody might throw a bag at Brody and build a team around his talent. Now, I do think he's a couple of years away from probably being peak Jalen, and I think a lot of that has to do with his efficiency as a three-level scorer and his handles. I mean, Bro was getting pickpocketed left and right by the Warriors. Him and Tatum collectively need to be working their handles. But Jalen Brown being offered, right? As much as I like Jalen Brown, if Boston's able to get Durant and still keep Tatum and potentially Robert Williams and or Marcus Smart, I think it's a deal to make. And so what I heard from guys was Brooklyn was like, look, we'll take you up on your offer if you give a smart Jalen Brown as a picks. And considering the fact that the Nets, no, we're not the Nets, but rather the Celtics just signed Malcolm Brogdon, who arguably is going to be taking league guard duties for smart. Durant will replace Jalen Brown as the de facto, he wouldn't be a two, as their new one, allowing Tatum to be more of a two. And we'll get to that later when it comes to Tatum, because I think Tatum long-term might just be a two, personally. And that's just me. Uh, I think it's perfect, because you've already got a guy in place in Brogdon who can replace Smart if he's dealt. Durant, at his age, is just a better player than Jalen. And if you're still able to keep Robert Williams and then off the bench, not a huge guy, that, not a huge fan of this player, but off the bench, Derek White is your second unit guard, I do the deal. Like, if the Nets are literally saying, we want Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart picks, and maybe one other player that's not named Robert Williams or Al Horford, I'll do it. Now, if the Nets want Brown, Smart, Williams, I'm not doing the deal because Robert Williams is a huge part of the rim protection. When he's not there, they're a completely different team defensively. So we already potentially could lose our defensive player to you on the perimeter and smart. I'm not trying to lose Robert either. And if you're Boston, you got to think this. Look, the goal is, is Banner 18. That was their mantra throughout the finals against the Warriors. They didn't achieve it. If the mantra is Banner 18, you got to get Banner 18 at all reasons possible. However, understand that at the end of the day, if you get Durant, bolsters your chances to win a championship. But if you don't get Durant and run back the same roster, you're fine. So I don't think Boston should put themselves in such a pressure cooker situation. If Brooklyn comes to you and it's like, look, Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown are the starters. That's the start point player-wise. If you give us those and just add filler picks behind it, we got ourselves a deal. If that's on the table... Take that if you're Boston. If it's some extra stuff, like Robert Williams as well, don't do the deal. Run back the team you currently had, because I think they were a point guard away from winning the championship anyway. If Brogdon, with Brogdon rather, already there, Brown and Tatum taking those next steps, fine-tuning their games as offensive players, they'll be right back in the conference finals next year with the Bucs. So I wouldn't push the needle from Boston. But I do think out of everybody that's desperate, you know, Boston – um, 
Toronto, Philly, Miami. I think Philly's the most desperate because Daryl Morey took the job and prioritized getting his man James Harden in the fold. They just saw a last playoffs, an unhealthy Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid took them to six games with the Miami Heat. And I, and I say this all the time. If Embiid didn't get clocked by Pascal Siakam in the face, I think they beat the Heat because he's healthy, of, healthy enough now to play 30 to 35 minutes, be productive, attract double teams, open up the floor for his shooters. But now Miami was able to play him one-on-one, get away with playing, get away with just being an overall undersized team because Embiid just didn't have the conditioning, pain tolerance, or just consistent ability to come out there and be impactful. And Harden was a show of himself this past year. We all know that. Philly's desperate because they're looking at it like this. Look, their window with Joel Embiid as a championship team is, is uniquely small because he is very injury prone. He gets nicked up at some point every single year for at least the past four to five seasons. So taking that into account, you also have James Harden. While I think Harden might have that Chris Paul renaissance, remember when Chris Paul uh, in 2019 was super trash against the Golden State Warriors in the conference semis, and everybody thought he was washed, got traded to the Thunder, built his brand and reputation back up, and had a bounce-back year that helped the Thunder go from a for sure lock as a lottery team to a playoff squad. I think Harden's going to have that type of pick-me-up this year. But even if he has that type of pick-me-up, he's no longer at a stage of his career where you can lean on him to give you 25 to 30 a night alongside Embiid. You're going to need Durant to potentially do that. And that's why I think they're desperate enough to get Durant. Now, it's going to come down to me personally, what Brooklyn's able to not connect with on the Boston side. If Brooklyn wants to suck Boston dry on some like your divisional rivals, we're going to be petty, la da 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 da. You want Durant, we'll give them to you at a cost. And they truly come at it with the mindset of we want the defensive player of the year, your all star caliber talent. And Robert Williams is also all defensive as well. Then they're out the fold, the Celtics. They're no longer in the sweepstakes. That puts Philly, in my opinion, front and center because while they won't offer Joel, and I'm pretty sure Brooklyn doesn't want James Harden back, they do have Tyrese Maxey. They do have Matisse Teibel. Tobias Harris has been thrown around as well. I know a lot of people think it's just a contract filler, but you have Thibel, a young defender. You have Maxey, an uh, up-and-coming talent at the point-slash-shooting our spot, kind of that modern-day combo guard that has been a mainstay in the game today. They have, in my opinion, the constellary pieces without having an all-star be a face that nobody else would have if Boston's off the picture. Because Philly's not going to give up Jimmy Butler and Ben Adebayo. Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson, and like that doesn't move the needle. The Toronto Raptors would either have to put Siakam or Scotty Barnes on the table. Now, I'll say this. I think out of everybody that Brooklyn could potentially want in a, in a potential transaction for Durant, they like Scotty Barnes the most. I like Scotty Barnes a lot, too. Now, I know a lot of individuals think Scotty Barnes rookie of the year season was a fluke. Um, you have a ton of guys that kind of rank it like this. They feel K and Mobley are tier one in that draft, and tier two is like a steep drop. I feel in that draft there were three franchise-caliber players. 
Evan Mobley, Kay Cunningham, Scotty Barnes. I think the Nets front office recognizes that as well. And I think they're down to do business with the Raptors if they just offer Scotty. But I don't think Toronto wants to offer Scotty. I know Messiah doesn't want to do that. They'd probably be more down to offer Siaka. But let's say they don't want to do that either. And it just comes down to, okay, who has the consulary player pieces to go with the, who has the best consulary player pieces to go with the draft picks? Toronto will be trading Gary Trent Jr., OG Ananobi, maybe Precious Atua and like six picks for Durant. Philly would be trading Tyrese Maxey, Tobias Harris, Matisse Thybulle, five picks. You know, so Boston's a favorite, but I think the second favorite is Philly. I think the third is, is Toronto, and I think the last is Miami. Now, here's the reality of the situation. Durant coming out, articulating to the world via reports through other journalists that he wants out lowers, I think, the market value that Brooklyn could potentially give for him in the deal. And I always felt like, because everybody's giving Brooklyn this pat on the back, that side comes out and says, nah, Durant's not going to tell us what to do. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, star players. And star players got to stay in their lane, man. Star players can't be telling guys what to do up top. They just need to play the game. First of all, the irony of all of this. Star players have always had control in various sports organizations throughout sporting history in America. Like, it's not breaking news. The only difference with this situation is it got out on social media. Um, it kind of reminds me of, and this is a dark, dark comparison, but bear with me. It's like when police brutality was such a huge thing in American culture the past few years, a lot of people were kind of making a wave about it in the context of, oh my goodness, how could such a thing happen in this country or the land of the free home of the brave? Because we all were able to capsulate it and kind of critique it and highlight it on social media. My response was police brutality has always been an issue within the communities of black America for centuries. It's just now everybody has a camera on their phone. Everybody has a device, a mobile device that has a built-in camera that can capsulate everything that's happening that's an atrocity. With the Durant situation, him demanding more power isn't crazy. Like, I'm pretty sure a lot of players in the league do this. Before they demand a trade, it's like, look, I want out of here, but if you really want me, I want this. We heard it with the Kawhi thing, with the Raptors. And in that situation, it's a little different because Kawhi was a free agent. Kawhi basically told the Lakers, the Raptors, and the Clippers, whoever gives me the most power for me and my uncle and my family, I'll go there. Now, we all know at the end of the day, he, it was Clippers in the end because he really wanted to be in L.A. But I do think if Toronto offered them the most power, which was, I heard some ridiculous stuff like his owner, his, 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 owner, his, father, his uncle rather, would get a stake in MSE. Like I heard some crazy stuff back then during the Kawhi Leonard sweep things. And nobody was, well, people tripped when he didn't go to the Lakers. But nobody made huge ways about how dare Kawhi does such a thing. Maybe it's because Kawhi won a championship the year prior, so he was on a, proverbial cloud nine when it comes to he was the last man standing with the finals MVP he could do whatever he wants but the inevitable point I'm trying to make is Durant doing what he did I don't think it's a big deal because everybody does it and it's been leaked out before historically I just gave the Kawhi thing as a great reference although that was a free agency Durant's still with the Nets and I don't feel like Durant's demands were crazy 
you know, and you had some people try to rationalize it all by saying, in, in counter-defensive Durant, I don't even know if that's a word, but they didn't want to defend Durant, so their spinology on it was basically this. Oh my gosh, KD's out here scapegoating Steve Nash. Oh my gosh, KD's out here scapegoating Sean Marks. All Sean Marks did was do whatever Durant wanted. Whatever Durant requested, he got from Sean Marks to GM. Um, and, oh, Durant wanted Steve Nash. So, we're going to talk about those two fables, because they aren't true. Number one, Steve Nash. I thought for the longest, leading up to this year's NBA draft, I was like, dang, Durant wanted Nash. I mean, that's that's what was told to me online. That was what I saw from Twitter. It was like the social media consensus. Durant wanted Nash. Nash sucked. It's understandable that Durant recognizes Nash sucks and he wants him out of there. But it's unfortunate because at the end of the day, he signed up for this novice of a coach who had no type of professional experience at the HC level. But then, kudos to my pops. He, he kind of peeped game for me. He said, that's not true. Management wanted Steve Nash, not Durant. So I did my research, and he's right. <laughs> Durant did not want Nash. He wanted Ty Lu. And management went out of their way and were like, nah, we're going to get the guy we want. And I don't know if it was because when Durant and Irving came, it was this power struggle initially early on that the players won. Because obviously you got Kyrie and Durant on your team. At the time, two all-NBA caliber talents for a next franchise that prior to their magical run when they lost in the first round to the Sixers, they haven't had consistent levels of playoff success anyway. So you have two champions come to your team willy-nilly and for agency and the first time they come through the door it's like yo i want this this and this you oblige because you want them to come through the door and i think once they got through the door the next brass up top were like all right these guys kind of got it made at that point because durant came durant came because of Kyrie. Kyrie came first durant followed durant said i want my boy deandre on the team he followed something that they gave durant a certain type of contract to where he would get paid X amount of dollars, even though he was going to sit out the year he signed because of the Achilles injury he suffered in the 2019 finals. All that. They acquiesced to Durant and Irving's request initially, early on. But when it came to the coaching decision, they went rogue. That was a Sean Marks decision, and Joe Sy signed off on Steve Nash. That is blood on their hands that, yes, I've heard people say this. Well, Durant signed off on it. He didn't have a choice. Because during that process, they were really only interviewing two guys, Nash and Jacques Vaughn, who I think the year prior was coaching in the bubble pretty well. They didn't choose Jacques. They chose Nash. And the reason why they chose Nash, the rationale was he had a relationship with Marks and he had a relationship with Durant. And if you look back in time, because when all that happened, everybody likes to say, well, once you, once you get that out there, like Durant didn't choose Nash, management did and then once you get out of, and then once you counteract the narrative, which is, um, what's the narrative? Oh, well, Durant signed off on it. Bro, he didn't have a choice. <laughs> like, you know, like, I'm pretty sure management came up to him and was like, yo, we're going to pick Steve Nash. You cool with it? And it's like, well, I mean, not really, but I, you know, because you're thinking, Steve Nash, I know him. Like, he's helped me. I've known him. We've worked together in Golden State. Like, I know of his existence. I know what he can bring to the table as a player assistant guy player uh, an assistant player coach type guy not a head man. um but the thing that everybody loves to bring up to kind of dilute the narrative of oh they didn't want that you know of oh now y'all don't want Nash because he sucked they like to be like well Kyrie said they don't need a coach this is during the podcast during the summer when they just hired Steve 
But if you think about it in its totality, the fact that Irving said it then and what we see now is crazy because basically what Irving was vaguely saying is Nash is a novice. He's in over his head. We don't have high expectations that he's going to come in and change the culture because he doesn't have experience coaching our championship caliber players like us anyway. So we don't need a coach. We'll just coach ourselves because we know Nash ain't going to be able to bring us to where we need to go. Based upon his track record, we could do it. And then two years later, you realize you can't. Now, first year is because of injuries, because I honestly think if none of those guys got hurt in that Bucks series, they're going to win to the finals. And in the second year, we're going to break all that down. So, But during that span, Nash did next to nothing. He didn't adjust very well. His rotations were crazy. Um, that first year he was there, it was widely rumored Mike D'Antoni was basically the coach. <laughs> I mean, the assistant guy was basically running the team. Nash was a sub. When D'Antoni and Udoka, both guys were on the staff the year they lost to the Bucks in seven. When they were both gone, now it's just Nash. And he's, he's brought his guys in to kind of round out the um, coaching tree. Now it's just Nash. It's on Nash's shoulders to get stuff done. And he gets exposed. So, in the end, Durant's request of fire Nash. Like, it's not a crazy request and it's not an asinine one. Because bottom line is Steve Nash was in over his head. He was a novice head man. We had no business getting the job, and in his two-year span there, he sucked royally. Was not good. That's undisputed. I don't. I don't care what I say. Like, I you could say, well, they wanted him. Yeah, they as in management did. The players didn't necessarily. Durant wanted Ty Lue. Kyrie wanted um, Phil Handy, who works for the Lakers. That's that's who they wanted. And now it goes back into the conversation of, well, Sean Marks about it to everything Durant and Irving wanted. And not true. And we're going to go, we're going to break down why that's not true. For starters, only thing Marks did that Durant wanted was he obliged to DeAndre Jordan joining the team. And you traded for James. That's it. That's it. He did those two things. He did not give Durant the coach he wanted. <laughs> He did not give Harden or Kyrie extensions. That was the main reason why he signed his first, because I'm pretty sure he was under the impression, I'm going to sign my extension first because my boy's going to sign theirs behind me. Did not sign both of them a year in advance, which allowed Harden to be unruly the year before, you know, the year leading up to free agency because he feels like two things. One, they didn't pay me. And then two, not only they didn't pay me, they're acquiescing they're playing tongue-in-cheek with Kyrie Irving while we're out here vaccinated, hooping during a pandemic. What's going on here? I don't like the vibe. I don't like the culture. I don't like the coach. Get me out of here. You didn't pay me. Um, you're mismanaging teammate situations. The coaching staff is straight trash. Why am I here? I'm gone. So they didn't do that. And I think by not doing that, it allowed Harden to basically tail off to a point of no return. And then the best part is we all knew once Harden was gone, because here's the caveat. Durant did not want Harden to get traded. He only obliged at the end because he recognized Harden no one here. Like, there's nothing I can do. So it's like, okay, like, trade Harden. Like, last resort. Just like the Nash stuff, man. Like, it's a last resort. Like, dang, like, that's not what I want. But, all right, do it. You know? So they did it with Harden. They traded him. And <laughs> they traded Harden to the Sixers for Ben Simmons, who we all knew coming. We all knew when that transaction happened. He might not play because he didn't play for the Sixers. Now, a lot of people thought, well, he didn't play for the Sixers because Rich Paul is telling him, sit out 
force your way out by sitting out. Don't let him maximize your talent. So everybody thought, oh, he's not playing with Philly because he's tripping about the fan, you know, the team throwing him under the bus for the debacle against the Hawks and the Simmies, all of that. And then before he gets traded, like leading up to before he gets traded, we start hearing he got back issues. Um, and then he's with the Nets and the back issues are still there. And leading up to the playoffs, now there's this newfound expectation of maybe, first it was maybe he can come back before the playoffs. Then it was, heck, we're in the playoffs. Maybe he can come back for game three. And then the season's done, Ben Simmons never plays. And your best player, Kevin Durant, came here to compete for championships. You traded his best friend for a guy that didn't play the whole season. Did not help them the whole season. That's on Sean Marks because he did not have to trade James Harden to the Sixers for Ben Simmons. I don't care if James Harden's like, I want to go there. You don't have to do that. You hold on to Harden. You know what I'm saying? And if he just walks, okay, he walks. What do you do? I say hold on to Harden the rest of the year. See what happens. Um, or if Harden really wants out that bad and you don't want Ben Simmons in a deal, trade James Harden somewhere else. I'm pretty sure there was another team out there that probably would have took a heart. You know what I'm saying? So now Ben Simmons, the expectation now for the Nets camp is he's healthy again. He could be a huge contributor, but the damage is done because 2021, at the end of the day, 2021 is why Kevin Durant wants out. Everybody keeps tapping into this weird logic of Durant, man, they gave you everything. Man, why are you tripping? It's like, bro, Durant wants out because of what happened in 2021. In 2021, they did not extend Kyrie or Hart to start the season. Did not happen. All right, so we're coming into the year. Kyrie does not want to get vaccinated. That's a personal decision that he made. Ownership, I thought, did a horrible job micromanaging that situation because, in my opinion, what they probably should have did was alert Irving early. Alert the team early. Yo, all y'all vaccinated or else... None of you guys are going to play. If that message is sent out there and Kyrie starts to buck, then you move accordingly. You know what I'm saying? Whether that's trade or whatnot. But all I'm saying is, early on with the Kyrie situation, they should have had an early on stance. Now, if that stance changes, that's fine. But before training camp, they should have articulated, yo, be vaccinated or else. Now, when you're... As we get closer to the season and you hear your best players, like, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Not a fan, but part-time Irving should have been an option. But instead, they sat him out, and then they brought him back, which meant they kind of went back on the word. They just mishandled it all. They sat Irving out early. They brought him back later in the year when they were struggling. And now he can't play home games because he's not vaccinated. And then towards the end, they're able to figure it out. So now he's able to play home games. And you see during the playoffs, he's not conditioned. He's not in shape because he hasn't been playing himself into basketball shape throughout the regular season. <laughs> you know, he hasn't. He just got going late in the year. And now in the playoffs, he can give you four minutes of good of solid play. And then he looks gassed. And that's what happens because they mismanaged it. They should have came down with a definitive decision. Either Kyrie, you're not playing the rest of the season unless you get vaccinated. Or you know what, Kyrie? We'll continue to work behind the scenes to convince mayor, the mayor of New York to change the ban. For guys to be in public buildings vaccinated. Until then, you'll play every road game and you just won't play home. And I think, you know, guys would have felt a type of way, but it's some type of consistency that we can go with and move forward. They mishandled that. That's on marks. That's on side. And then you know to keep Durant in the fold long term. You gotta resign his man's. Yeah, his man's didn't get vaccinated. Yeah, Kyrie 
was highly unprofessional throughout the year. Yeah, Kyrie ran out of gas in the playoffs and looked like a shell of himself after a fabulous game one. But sometimes you got to make a deal with the devil to stay relevant in sports. And in a weird way, the devil was Irving. <laughs> like you had to pay Irving to keep the guy that you really want, you really value, who can make you a championship contender. Durant, they said, nah, we're not going to give, we're not going to even try to work out a contract ideology to keep Irving in the fold. They could have did a three for two, could have did a two for one, something with clauses, something. They could have done it. And I don't think they tried. My, me personally, I'm not an insider. I don't genuinely know. So my personal opinion, I don't think they put a concerted effort to get a deal done, knowing the ramifications of if the deal doesn't get done, Durant can dip. And so they don't do it with Irving. We all knew well, if you're not going to resign Irving, Durant is going to want to get traded. Durant asked to get traded. And they look shook. And so now it's like, shit, Durant wants to get traded. So we're going to ask for the moon and the stars to do two things. See if somebody reaches our level, at least close to it in terms of what we want, or everybody folds, and then we kind of get what we truly want inside, which is Durant to still be here. But that doesn't work anymore because Durant's come out and said, oh, bro, like, bump y'all. Like, I'm mad at Marks because he didn't pay my man. He didn't pay any of my mans, which is one of the main reasons why I got I did the extension to stay here because I thought all my boys were going to be here. Didn't pay none of them. One of them's gone. Another one is potentially going to be out of here in a year, knowing how he feels. And... You hired Steve Nash when I wanted Ty Lue. And those two decisions are why the Brooklyn Nets are where they are right now. Both decisions really are ugly head in 2021 because Marks made the hard Ben Simmons transaction knowing the risk. And then when it blew up in their face, he looked like an idiot. Steve Nash, Ben was in over his head. And as soon as Dan Tony and Udoka left, the organization, because they know this guy better than anybody you saw from the year prior, should have prioritized giving Nash some type of coaching experience on his staff so he doesn't look like a clueless idiot at times on the floor. And so in the end, this is my take on it all with the Durant thing. I think Kevin Durant is going to get traded. And because he's going to get traded, this huge stance that everybody feels Josiah is taking and whenever we showcase his ownership muscle that all owners across the NBA want to get back in a potential new CBA down the line, he's not being revolutionary if he trades the rent to an ideal situation in the Eastern Conference. Like, it, it kind of reminds me of the vaccine situation, where early on the vaccine was the unknown, and so a lot of people kind of were going off of historical discrepancies of individuals in American culture succumbing to American modern, well, not modern. I guess it was modern for its times. So coming to American medicine that wasn't ready to be tested on everyone. So they use humans as lab rats to see if stuff stuck. And so everybody thought, well, that's the mindset they're doing now with this, this vaccine. Although I did some research, the vaccine was always in the works, the COVID vaccine for years. <laughs> so, you know, and so now you got guys like, well, I'm not taking examples in it. You know, I'm taking a stand. And then they want to get sick. And then they want to die. You know, and so now that narrative changes because once you read and see what you see for what it is, your eyes are like uh, overdoing it at the end of the day. If you want to take a personal stance, that's fine, but don't make it revolutionary when in the end it's not. Because at the end of the day, your logic based upon why you think this way just ain't mathing up. And so with Psy, the only revolutionary stance Psy can take 
where I would be like, I respect him because I don't really respect him now because all he's done so far is say, I'm going to choose Marks and Nash, my friends and business partners, over a top 10 NBA player in today's game. That's literally all he's done. That's not a flex. That's a dumb freaking decision. Now, what he can do that I respect is this. He can say, look, Durant, this is what I'm going to do. Maybe he told him in a meeting. I don't know. If he told Durant, look, Durant, I know you want to get traded, but here's what we're going to do. We have a bar set in terms of what teams can offer to us that we'll accept and trade you towards. You're not going to potentially get what you want. You might go somewhere that's not on your list. You're going to have to deal with it if you truly want to get the heck out of here. And the only way we're going to trade you is if any team in the league meets our benchmark of requirements, which is, sounds like an all-star player, two solid complimentary starters, six first-round picks. If somebody can do that, you're out of here. If they can't, have fun being in that next season. If he says that, respect. But he's not really saying that. You know, all he's doing is, what I'm hearing report-wise, we're still trying to trade Durant for the best offer. And and I'm like, bro, like you're not going to get the marquee offer that you potentially could have if this whole Durant transaction Brooklyn Nets saga was kept under wraps. If it was kept under wraps a lot better, and trust me, transactions have been kept under wraps better before. There's been, I've heard stories of Kobe Bryant and the Detroit Pistons being a done deal that was nixed under the table because these guys had a talk and it was like, all right, be good. So if you really didn't want to get this out, you should have had to sat down, sit down with Durant and kind of tell him what it is. But you wanted to get it out to, I guess, get ahead of the story and make yourselves look great. But all it's done is just so how incompetent the Brooklyn Nets are. And this is the best part, right? You know, Cy and Mark, excuse me, they, they talked about it at the end of the year. We don't care about having stars on our team. We just want to be like that squad that existed before Durant with Jared Allen, D'Lo, and Karis Bird. We just want to be competitive in the East. Basically, you want to be the Wizards, you know, da 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 I'm like, bro, your fan base a few years ago was given the allure, the vision of once we have Durant and Irving, we're competing for a championship. For you to take that away from them this season because you're upset that Kyrie wasn't there because he didn't oblige to a vaccine mandate, that I have my personal opinions about, but you already knew what was in the cards. You knew Irving potentially was going to take the vaccine. Um, Harden's not on the team anymore because you didn't extend him earlier. I'm going to just be honest. You didn't give him his bag earlier. Should have gave him his bag. As soon as you traded for him, the bag should have been delivered. And so now you're going to make your fan base pay, in my opinion, for your own mistakes. You chose to trade hard for Simmons. You chose to mishandle the Kyrie situation. You chose to not re-sign Kyrie, knowing by not doing that, Durant was going to be out the door. You chose to sign Steve Nash over what Kyrie wanted for Landy and KD wanted Ty Lue, two clearly better basketball candidates. This blood is on you, yet you're trying to pay it on the players like, hey, man, you know, if it wasn't for their ego, bro, like, we would have been competitive. Listen, Durant and Irving aren't perfect. Irving was highly unprofessional and wanted sympathy for being highly unprofessional once the season was over. That's scatterbrain, but that's about that's about Kyrie for you. And with Durant, I didn't think he did a good job holding his teammates accountable. Sitting Kyrie down and being real. You don't have to convince Kyrie to do something he doesn't want to do, but you could tell him, look, dog, for us to win a championship, we're going to have to make sacrifices. And if you're not willing to make the sacrifice, my guy, we're not going to win. 
be real with him. I don't know if he was real with Kyrie. I think he was acquiescing to Kyrie's feelings, and that's not being authentic with James Harden. Be real with Harden, all right? Or I don't really think he had to be real with Harden. I think Harden understood what was at stake. That's why he's not there. If you want your guys to get paid, because that's why that's why KD signed the extension. If you sign an extension with the idea of my guys are going to get paid and all three of us are going to be here in the BK and months pass and they're not signed yet, I'm going to sign and Marks and I'm saying, what's up, bro? I signed this extension thinking one of these dudes is going to get re-signed. You going to sign him? Put the pressure on him to re-sign your mans. I don't think he did that. So because Durant didn't hold accountable his teammate and the organization until later, and he's only held the organization accountable, not Kyrie at all. Now it puts him in a bind to where it's too late. You know, like it's really not too late, but it's too late. And when I mean too late, it's you're probably not going to get what you truly ideally want because what's potentially going to happen is maybe you go to a better situation in Brooklyn, better coaching, better management, personnel that fits you clearly. You know, maybe you're able to go there. But it might take half of the season. It might take next year. Where if you were up front with the team you're with currently about, yo, pay my mans or else, or what's up with this or else, then you would have put a lot of pressure on the Nets to acquiesce to what you wanted. I just feel like Durant waited too late. First, worst thing Durant did. He's learning now. Do not sign that extension, my brother. If your teammates ain't. If they can't work it out with them, I ain't signing nothing. So you just go ahead into 2021 all on one year deals. And that way, Durant would play out this year. And then once he realized the organization don't want to pay Kyrie, y'all out of here. We all know he's only with the Nets because Kyrie. We all know that. And so that he mismanaged that. So Durant gets blamed for mismanaging all of that. But when I hear Durant made the bet, he lied in. No, he did not. 70% of the current crap hole that the Nets are in is because of management. It's because management made some very scatterbrained decisions this past year that supremely constricted their title window. It just did. And now I'm hearing Bobby Marks used to work with the Nets, ESPN trying to spin doctorate like, well, this is the best Nets roster they've had since Durant's been here. No, it's nothing's beating Pete Harden, Pete Kai, Pete Durant. That without injuries was going to the finals. Ain't nobody beat that. Look, I, I like Royce O'Neal as a three and D option. Ben Simmons is still an enigma. Steve Nash is still not a good coach. And they're still woefully undersized in an Eastern Conference that has Giannis and Bede. You know, like, they have bigs in the East. You can't get away with being an undersized team that plays no defense in the Eastern Conference with marquee big men who have size, physicality, and skill to make you pay. But I do think Durant's going to get traded. Where do I think he's going to get traded? I think it's either going to be the Celtics or the Sixers. Like, I, I don't. Uh, it's going to be one of them. Two. And I don't think any of these teams are going to fold to what Brooklyn wants. And I think a lot of that now is because Durant has articulated he wants out of it because he gave an ultimatum. And so far, Brooklyn's not adhering to that ultimatum. So he's gone. <laughs> like, he's out of there. And that's just what it is. But you know, the Durant topic is going to continue to be talked about for the next weeks. Um, as NBA training camp is approaching, that's next month. So we're going to have plenty of time to kind of fall on, fall on rather, but talk about what's what, what can happen, what potentially can happen 
in the coming days. Now, what is Among Us? It's NFL preseason. The preseason starts tonight, two games. You have the Giants and the Patriots. You have the Titans playing the Ravens. I think the Ravens and the Titans are playing. So those are two preseason games going on. I'm going to check Ravens and Titans because I really want to see uh, Malik Willis. I want to see how he looks playing against NFL talent. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be legit NFL talent that he'll be going against because more than likely he's going to be running with second stringers. It's going to be twos versus twos. But, hey, you get to see Malik Willis sling that thing in a live platform. The New York Giants, I'll check them out a little bit. Daniel Jones in um, in the Brian Dayball offensive system. Can he have a potential career here? I like Daniel Jones personally as a quarterback talent, but I do think he's Jameis Winston with less talent. You know, I, I like his talent, but I think he's Jameis Winston with less talent. What I mean by that is he's a turnover machine that really can't make it up with wild arm talent. You know, Jameis has wild arm talent. So, yeah. Everybody clowns him about the 30 for 30. It's not good. But there were games where he would throw three picks, and then he'd have a couple of drives where you're like, wow, he was zinging them towards the bottom. He was zinging them across the middle. Daniel doesn't have that, so he kind of has to play mistake-free football while also be effective. It'll be intriguing to see that against the Patriots in the preseason. Now, the 10 things I am intrigued about during the preseason, I have 10 things. We're going to break down all 10 of them. We're going to go one. By one. The first one, Trey Lance continuing his solid training camp performance in the preseason with the ones. It's official, Trigger Trey is QB1 for the Niners. And I've been hearing throughout his rookie year, throughout the offseason before training camp, that the Niners don't know if they're sold on Trey Lance. They don't know if Trey Lance is the guy. Just a lot of, lot of anti-Trey Lance banter from Niners camp. And it's kind of got me like, dude, like, if you really don't like him that much, why did you draft him? Like, you could have drafted the guy that everybody thought you were going to, that everybody insinuated that you fell in love with, and Mac Jones. You could have just drafted Mac, and Trey Lance could have been with the Panthers or some stuff. But you got Trey. Cool. And now we're seeing in camp where everybody's there, like, everyone's there, reporters, photographers, players, everyone's able to see who he is. And the takeaway is... He is that dude as a talent. Now, he's very raw. He's very unrefined. He's going to have his ups and downs. But Trey Lance has two things that you kind of can't teach at the NFL level that matter, especially at the QB1 position. Supreme arm ability and those legs. Being able to run and pick up yards on the ground when the play breaks down. Being able to pick up yards on the ground and run design plays as a QB1 is phenomenal. And you got that arm tag with it. Sky's the limit for Trey. I think Trey Lance. I felt this way in the draft. I thought Trey Lance had the highest ceiling. Trey Lance literally reminded me of a more accurate Cam Newton. You know? And I would not be surprised if by the end of this year, he is a top 15 quarterback statistically in the league. He's got what it takes. He's a substantial upgrade over Jimmy Garoppolo. And I think he's going to make the Niners into a legit NFC title contender. You know, yeah, they made it to the MC Championship game with Garoppolo, but they in large part made it because, let's be real, Dallas is playing stupid. And <laughs> Aaron Rodgers choked. Now, Aaron Rodgers choking it was a lot because of that defense. Like, that Niners front seven is still nasty. 
But Trey Lance is going to allow that offense now to reach heights to where when that front, they can get leads early, double-digit leads, and now that front seven is able to pin their ears back and go crazy. So Trey Lance, man, he's going to do wonders this year. Can't wait to see him. In the preseason, the Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback situation. I've heard Kenny Pickett struggle. I've heard Mr. Trubisky's been up and down. And I've even heard Mason Rudolph at one point was the best quarterback out of those group of guys this year for the Steelers. Look, Pittsburgh, I'm going to be honest. I don't know why you didn't draft Malik Willis. Um, I, the only thing I can figure of why you didn't is because there was a sense of comfortability with Pickett. He's in your backyard at Pitt. You get to see him every Saturday. You kind of know what you're getting. And you're probably looking for a safe bet in a conference where maybe they're looking at it like this. Like, look, um, Joe Burrow's that dude. Lamar Jackson's that dude. Deshaun Watson's Pitt. Like, like, maybe they're looking at like, they're that dude, but... Burrow, for better or worse, as talented as he is, does hold on the ball too long. And while their offensive line is refined, is it truly how much better will it be from last year's? Last, last year's was a shit show. But is it just average? Like, we're going to see. I like Lamar, but Lamar's issues is he's not a consistent boundary passer. And we don't know what's going to happen to Sean Watson. Like, I assume he's going to get suspended for a year. So next year when he comes back, he'll have two, he'll, it'll be two years he never played football. So there's going to be a level of rust. So maybe Pittsburgh's thinking, look, we could pick a safe bet at quarterback in our div- safe bet at quarterback and get away with it because we win our division. And maybe they're banking on, look, we got the weapons galore. We got the running back in Najee Harris. We got a defense that features TJ Watt and Mika Fitzpatrick. We got impact players on both ends that can make up for decent quarterback play. But my response is, bro, you're not in the NFC, my G. You can't get away with just having Jimmy Garoppolo as your QB1 and get to the championship game because you may have to play Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady just one time. If the Steelers make the playoffs, there's a chance. They are going to have to go through a playoff gauntlet that consists of Justin Herbert, Josh Allen, Pat Mahomes. And I don't care how good your defense is. (laughs) They're going to get burned by those supreme, talented QB1s. And when they do, you better have a QB1. They might not have to be as elite as those guys, but they damn near better be solid. I just don't see that with Pickett. Pickett reminded me of Teddy Bridgewater. Literally reminded me of Teddy Bridgewater. Um, And Teddy Bridgewater, before he got hurt, was a solid NFL quarterback. But I do think even if he didn't get hurt, he was going to reach a ceiling. And his ceiling is tier three. Like, he's at, at, at his best, he's solid. At his worst, he's average like that's picking Malik Willis is a raw unrefined talent but he has a rocket arm supreme wheels you can empty the playbook on Brody as he grows into his skill set they, they just missed out like they, like they missed out I, I just feel like they missed out and so now they're in a conundrum so I'm interested to see how Pickett performs in the preseason like I've heard in training camp he's been mid he's been pretty bad I've even heard at one point he's been running with the threes and we're in like third, second, to third week of camp. That's a little alarming. So I'm interested to see how all those guys look, but mostly Pickett. And if I walk away thinking Pickett just ain't it, that's a problem. I walked away from that with Sam Darnold last year. There was a lot of hoopla when the Panthers traded the second and the third for Darnold, and then I saw Darnold play one preseason game, and I'm like, it, I'm not sold, because it just looks like they're protecting him from himself. And that's, you can get away with that early in the regular season, because everybody's feeling each other out. You can get away with that in the preseason because the Marshall really operating under his 
specific game plan. But once we get into October and November, they're bringing the heaters. And you're going to have to execute everything with the blinders going crazy. And Donald's not that guy. So I'm afraid maybe that's going to be Pickett's fate as well. And I'm just interested to see. I think Pickett, by far, everybody was looking at as the safest bet. And I get that. Like, safe bet. But I feel like if you're a team in the AFC, you can't get away with safe bets at quarterback. Not when you got the Mount Rushmore's of the current greats that you're playing against. You can't get away with it. Can't keep getting away with it. I'm just being real. Number three, the Dallas Cowboys wide receiver room. Look, when Amari Cooper was not re-signed, everybody lost. I'm not going to say everybody. A lot of people that don't really follow the Cowboys lost their minds because I think they're looking at Amari Cooper for what he was statistically last year because his numbers weren't bad. Like, I think he was over a 1,000 yards receiver, damn near close to it. And they just remember when the Dallas Cowboys got Amari Cooper via trade against the Raiders, via trade with the Raiders, it changed Dak Prescott's career forever. And so because of those two things, by them getting rid of him, you're like, well, dang, like, that's the guy that made Dak Prescott into – a multi-millionaire at the quarterback position. He's not there. Their passing game is going to struggle. But what people fail to realize by watching Cowboys games, as the years went on, Amari Cooper just vanished. And I don't know if it was frustration, injury, uh, not feeling involved in the game plan, which adds on to the level of frustration he did have. I don't know if it was any of those three things, but I'm just going to go off of what I see. I'm not in the guy's brain. So I'm going to see how he is as a player. And as a player, he declined. You're starting to get locked up by the likes of Stephon Gilmore and Marshawn Lattimore. As you're one, if you're one receiver getting taken out of the game by opposing number one corners, you have a problem. And they did invest top 15 draft kind of capital on C.D. Lamb. And C.D. Lamb last year, I remember coming into the year of fantasy, everybody was like, C.D., C.D., C.D. Lamb's going to break out. I wasn't sold on the C.D. hype, personally. I needed to see more. And then sure enough, C.D. Lamb was like, he was all right. But what I did see from Lamb, like the biggest takeaway I have from Lamb, was, oh, he's he's got number one ceiling potential. It's just he's got to figure out the drops, and they got to incorporate him more in the offensive game plan. And that's on Kellen Moore and Mike McCarthy. But, so I think CeeDee Lamb is going to take the Amari Cooper wide receiver one spot pretty well. He's going to thrive. I don't think wide receiver one is going to be an issue. What I do think is going to be an issue is the guy's opposite. Because now, James Washington, leg injury. He potentially might be back the first month of the season, but he's not going to be there probably week one. He's not going to be in the preseason at all. Let's focus on the preseason. He's not going to be in the preseason at all. Um, Michael Gallup will not be healthy by week one. So Gallup and Washington are not in the offensive lineup for the wire, for the Dallas Cowboys at wide receiver. So now they're leaning on Jalen Tolbert. A mid-round selection for South Alabama. Who, when I turn on the tape, I like the dude, man. I like him. I like him. He reminds me of a tougher Gallup. Like, I don't think he's the speedster that Gallup is, or the leaper that Gallup is, but he's a possession guy that can line up all over the field. He's tough as nails, and he can break tackles after the catch. I think he's going to thrive. Got the Brody on my fantasy team as a bench outlet. We'll see what happens. I can't wait to see Tober do his thing in, in the preseason because I've seen and heard and read some things about how he's been balling in camp. And if he can thrive, in the preseason and carry that momentum to the regular season. Imagine what Dallas's receiving court will look like when Michael Gallup comes back. Now Gallup can ease himself back into the lineup, not having to produce high-level wide receiver two numbers because, bro, we need help. C.D. Lamb's on island. And then I expect him to incorporate the tight ends as well, maybe run the ball more. So 
I'm intrigued to see Dallas's wide receiver room as a whole. I kind of know what CD Lamb is. I think CD Lamb solidifying he's for sure the wide receiver one would be a plus if he could do that in the preseason. But I just want to see the, the, the enigma, the monster known as Jalen Tober. What does he present offensively? I think that would be intriguing as well. The next one, Seattle's quarterback conundrum. I'm not going to stay on this particularly too long. I'm going to keep it simple, short, sweet. And I'm going to say this. Seattle, man, they're tanking. But, man, <laughs> they're really a decent quarterback away from being a playoff caliber team in the next few years in the NFC. Um, I don't know what quarterback they're potentially looking for. Um, it'll ultimately come down to what they value in terms of C.J. Stroud or um, Bryce Young. I like Bryce Young. Bryce Young reminds me a lot of a taller Russell Wilson. Um, so maybe they might want to dabble into that in the future. But they're, they're tanking. And it's sad because they're a very talented roster outside of, I think, a couple of positions, linebacker and quarterback. Like, I think their linebacking core is not that good. I know Jordan Brooks is going to get an elevated position since Bobby Wagner's no longer on the team. I just need to see more from him as a complete backer. I know he's a solid run stopper. I know he's improved in coverage from year one or year two. Need to see that blossoming. I think the young quarters they invested in, and Kobe Bryant and Tariq Woolen, I like them a lot. I think Seattle is not. This might be the best young tandem of corners Seattle's had since Sherman and Brown. By I, and Maxwell, I'm going back there. It's, it's a bold, bold take, but I like what they bring to the table, and I like what I've seen in camp. There's just a quarterback away. There literally are, and Geno Smith and Drew Locke are not the answers, and I think having them play on your team is going to give you four wins, and I think Seattle's cool with that. Look, they paid DK. They've paid Lockett. They've paid Jamal Adams, for better or worse, although Adams has a, has a wished injury that he's messed up some more, so we don't know his status heading into the year. But we could say they got those guys locked up, though. And so they have their stars, their prominent cornerstones locked up for the foreseeable future. They just need a QB. And they don't have one this year. So that's, that's bad luck. But I'm interested to see how Gino and Drew look in terms of can they play well enough to where once the tank job is over in Seattle this season, can he get a new gig somewhere else as a backup? We'll see. Um, the Las Vegas Raiders in their top topsy-turvy offensive line. Brandon Parker and Alex Leatherwood were supposed to be competing for the right tackle spot. Parker tore his tricep lifting weight, so he is gone. So Leatherwood, who was an abomination last year at the tackle and guard position for the Raiders, has a chance to compete for the right tackle job. The only thing that's holding back the Raiders is secondary concerns. Because I have some. I like Nate Haas and Morgan. But what about everybody else? Trevon Mullins, is he going to come back and be serviceable again? What he was before he got hurt? And the offensive line for the Raiders, like, they have... Now, here's the thing about the Raiders' offensive line. They can run the ball pretty well. Now, it's just one preseason game, so I'm going to have to see more. But they can run back particularly well. Run block, rather, particularly well. So I think they should be a more balanced team. I think that's what they should be leaning on throughout the year because that pass blocking is not it. <laughs> they are probably easily by far the worst offensive line in their division. And that's a problem because the Chargers have both sent back. The Broncos... They can get there. Like, you're going to have to be able to protect your quarterback. And if you're not able to protect your quarterback, it doesn't matter how talented your offense is, their ability to maximize their full potential is capped and limited if you can't keep your QB1 off the ground. So that's what I'm really interested to see with the Raiders as this preseason goes on, especially in that second game where the starters get run. Third game, rather, for the Raiders, because I think 
play another game, you play the Hall of Fame game. I don't know if that still goes on. Um, can they hold up against the opposition starting Kyle Line? And if they can't, I think that's a lingering concern that we're justified to have as we get into the year for the Raiders. For the Chicago Bears, they're number six, the wide receiver room about, around Justin Fields. Justin Fields is that guy. He's very talented. Um, I think he can make all the throws. I, the only concern I have with Fields is he has a tendency to hold on to the ball too long and force the issue. A lot of young quarterbacks have that discrepancy within their game. That's something that they, for sure, as they get older and mature, they grow out of gradually. But he's got the wheels. He's got the arm. He can make the throws. And even with his weak receiving core, I've been hearing raves and wonders about how he's looking a lot better in year two than he did in year one. I think a huge part of that is because Nagy's not there no more. He got competent offensive insight from a guy they got for the Green Bay Packers. Now, my only issue with the Bears is it doesn't matter how improved Fields is, that receiving room is not good. Like, Cole Commit and Darnell Mooney are solid NFL players. I think Darnell Mooney on a lot of teams is probably a wide receiver three at worst. At best, he's a wide, fringe wide receiver two, but he's a wide receiver one of the Bears. And I think because of that, he'll be okay. I don't know if he lives up to his fullest potential. I honestly think the leading receiver for fields will be Cole Command. I think that'll be his best friend over the middle of the field. But outside of that, I, I need to see Vilas Jones, what, what he's looking like. That's a guy that they took from Tennessee, who's 24 years old. He's a rookie. I need to see him. Byron Pringle, that's another guy they got. And Kill Harry um, at a high ankle sprain, so he won't play in the preseason. I'm just interested to see this ragtag receiving core that we all agree, which is ironic, right? They and the Packers, who we're going to get to next have the worst receiving rooms in the NFL, in my opinion. Well, I'm not going to say the worst. I don't want to say the Packers are the worst because Romeo does and Washington are unknowns, and I think as rookies, they're going to be pretty decent. But the Bears are the worst in the league. I don't know how Justin Fields can be productive with that. Uh, he can only do so much. Now, if Justin Fields is able to get out this year, play all 17 games, have a solid touchdown to interception ratio, a completion percentage in at least in the mid-60s, and throw for... At least around 3,800 yards, that's a W. Because, bro, look what he's working with. It's not that good. And so that's where I'm really interested to see in the preseason. The Bears receiving core working in tandem with fields. What they looking like against the opposition. Green Bay's receiving room. Is Alan Lazar really a wide receiver? I don't. I don't really think he's a wide receiver. One, last year he had his highest target total and his lowest PFF receiving grade. And I know... Rodgers is yassing Lazard up because that's the long, second longest tenure receiver that's on the team outside of Randall Cobb. And he probably wants Lazard to take that next step, just like Devontae Adams. He convinced him to take that next step when Jordy Nelson was going. But here's the thing that Adams had that Lazard just hasn't. For starters, Adams hasn't been riddled with injuries throughout his early career like Lazard has. And Adams flashed a lot more in a secondary role as a receiver too than Lazard ever has. That's just real. And when I hear rumblings of Romeo Dubs lighting it up, and eventually we expect when Christian Watson comes back from his injury, he's going to be a factor. I just don't see Lazard naturally talented enough to usurp him as wide receiver one. But if he can, I'd be glad he proved wrong. And we'll get to see that in the preseason because those the, the Green Bay receiving core, along with, with Rodgers and Jordan Love, will get reps. And we're going to truly get to see how dynamic this receiving core is. Because right now it's an unknown. We know the names. 
but we don't know how that talent is going to be able to mess with an aging Aaron Rodgers. Um, moving on to number eight, nine, and ten. We're going to wrap it all up. Wrap it all up before we um, head to the final top of the pod. The Titans and Malik Willis. I could see Malik Willis tonight against the Ravens. That's going to be exciting. Saw a couple of clips of his rocket arm. Landing some pretty accurate throws to some tight receivers. One of them was Traylon Burks. So I'm interested to see those two formulated tandem. I, I truly think next year the Titans are going to have Malik Willis be the QB1. So the preseason for Malik Willis is huge to showcase to Tennessee that he has what it takes to be their future sooner rather than later. The Cleveland Browns are rumored to be starting Deshaun Watson at quarterback tomorrow in their preseason game against the Jacksonville Jaguars. The intrigue will be... Will they be able to execute that accordingly before Roger Goodell comes back and says Watson suspended for a year? If they're able to get that game off over Roger, um, Roger Goodell's ruling, that would be sweet um, for the Browns. They'll be interested to see Watson play quarterback for the first time in a year, but it's really not going to hit the same because of everything that's moving over him and the fact that the reality is he's not going to play this year. He's not. And the New Orleans Saints, my team, they receive the revamp receiving court. I've been seeing Alave make some nice catches. Word on the street has been Michael Thomas is dominated in training camp. He looks back to regular season MT prime all pro form. And Juice Landry can't help as a veteran leader. Saints went from having the worst receiving corner in the league last year to one of the best. And now that you have the likes of Callaway, Harris, and Traquan being your tier two guys, now you have a deep receiving core that you can put on the field from a matchup perspective, and get the most out of them, accordingly from a hierarchy perspective. So those are the 10 things I'm looking forward to in the preseason this year. It should be fun. It's a lot to look forward to. It's a lot to look into. I can't wait to see what happens. And the sky is the limit for all 32 teams. Last but not least, before we wrap this podcast up, I want to touch base on some college football, SWAT football preview want to dive into it. Um, caveat to you guys, I think potentially I might reach out to Blue Buds in the coming weeks. Maybe we can do a swag football preview on the pod and kind of talk about each team, their pros and cons, what you're looking for, the hierarchy, things of that nature. So I'm going to do this solo dolo without the, without the boy wonder, without the college football guru. I'm going to talk about the teams I'm intrigued in, things of that nature. Let's go. So the teams I'm intrigued in, in the swag. Grambling and Southern, the two teams that are always in the Bayou Classic, Rivals, cap off swag football at the end of November. Those are the two most intriguing teams I'm looking forward to seeing this year because they both have new coaches. Eric Dewey from Prairie View, Hugh Jackson from the Pros, and Grambling. They're going to have a new quarterback, each of them. Um, I don't know who QB1 is going to be in Grambling. It's still a mixed bag. I know in Southern, it's probably going to be uh, Bashawn McKay. Uh, he looked pretty good in, in camp. And, you know, Dooley's expressing wants a guy that can win him a game. Uh, but Sean McKay, at the very least on the roster, is the guy that won't lose you it. <laughs> so, and I think he's serviceable enough to play with the lead and play from behind. So I think he's going to be the QB1. And then for the Southern Jaguars, man, uh, getting Jason Dumas from Preview to um, Transfer Portal, maintaining Jordan Lewis, getting some key guys from Division Two Bowie State to join their defense. I think Southern has as complete of a defensive unit as there is in the SWAC. They also have the bevy of running backs. They always are going to have a top zero line. It's just going to come down to quarterback play. But I think the safe bet is 
they're I'm intrigued. But I think Southern by far in the SWAC West has the best team. So uh, I'd expect them to potentially compete for a SWAC championship when it's all said and done. Um, as for Grambling, like I said, I'm just intrigued to figure out how the roster is going to look opening day. Like, who's their quarterback? Uh, they got a, they gave a whole ton of guys scholarships. I think 40 to 50 guys got scholarships this right year. So Hugh Jackson has changed the culture from a player perspective. How do all of those players mesh? Because right now, it does seem like from afar, a cluster book. Can they put it all together? That's the concern. Safe bets. I think Jackson State and FAMU are the safe bets. They have an established culture from a year ago. Dion was coach of the year in the FCS. Um, got FAMU's head man. He's still a solid guy. Isaiah Land and BJ Bogler still holding down the FAMU defense. For JSU, they go as far as Shadour can take them. Offensively and then defensively, you still got Nugget Warren. And you have the number one recruit, Travis Hunter. I think they're safe bets in the swag. Like, I don't think there's going to be any concern about how they can be productively. Now, FAMU does have a QB competition that's still going on. But I think Rashawn McKay is going to win it, personally. I think Rashawn McKay is decent enough to not lose you a game if the coaching staff recognizes he's more of an Alex Smith than a Derek Carr, if you know what I mean. Um, Jackson State, my only concern with JSU, they got the talent. I just, the coaching. They got a new offensive coordinator. Uh, from Nevada, we'll see what he can do in an air raid system. My only thing about running an air raid system is you got to have some type of offensive line. Like, I know the air raid system is designed to get the ball out quick, but you still have to have a competent O-line. They've rebuilt their O-line this year, Jackson State. It's just all about them coming together and filling it out. And going back to my biggest con- concern, rather, with JSU is the coaching and the philosophy. The talent is there. I think what hurts them in a multitude of games is they play against a team that's well-coached and has an identity. And because of that, they get hit in the mouth, and then they have to struggle to find out what their identity is game in and game out, matchup, matchup-wise. And that's why you have games like Alabama A&M where you're locked in because you know, all right, Alabama A&M, they like to spread us out. So we're going to hit them in the mouth with our front seven defensively and then offense because they'll run down and throw. That's what they did. But now you play a team like Alcorn, who is not as talented as you, but Alcorn has an identity. Their identity is as undersized as they are. They're going to run the football. They're going to ball control. Um, you know, their quarterback, Phyllis Harper, is not going to lose them in the game. He's a magician. They're going to play fundamentally sound football, and you're just going to have to beat them. And they were able to beat them and Southern. But my thing with Jackson State is this. Everybody in the SWAC got better from a recruiting and a coaching perspective. So now I don't think they can no longer rely on talent to just run through Not this season. They're going to have to execute on the field and get it done day in and day out every, every Sunday. I can't wait to see what happens. Now the dark horses. I got Texas Southern and Bethune Cook. Let's start with Bethune Cook. Jalen Jones is going to be their QB1. I'm not a huge Jalen Jones fan. He's played for Jackson State. Phenomenal wheels, inconsistent arm. But if ECU comes into this season with an offensive philosophy of we're going to be RPO-based and feature Kamari Everett, the best tight end FCS, they're going to be a 7-win team. And that makes them a dark horse in the SWAC because a 7-win team in the SWAC can't get to the SWAC championship game. I think they're going to be a tough out. They're always a tough out with FAMU. Before last year, they've owned FAMU in the Florida Classic. But 
you know, fam, you got them last year. And last year, Bethune Cumming came out and acknowledged, bro. Like, they didn't play in the spring. Um, they were not prepared for a COVID season. And they looked unprepared. Like, they didn't practice throughout spring. They didn't do none of that. None of that. Had no type of spring prep for fall play. And it showed last year. Now, towards the end of the year, they beat Alcorn. Um, they gave FAMU a hell of a fight for a path. So you started to see towards the end of the season them get their pride together. They even gave Jackson State something to worry about for half. I think with a full season under their belt, with a better quarterback playing a more defined offensive defensive identity, they'll be better. And T- TSU, man. man, only reason, Andrew Body. Andrew Body special. He's got it. He's got the it factor. He's got the, the versatility on the ground and through the air. It's in him. Now, I don't think TSU as a team is there yet. I think they had a whole t- had a ton of freshmen the year before. These guys are still underclassmen, although they became sophomores. And while they have experience, they're not there. I think TSU can be more of a squat West factor in the next coming years down the line. I'm talking about year three and year four under Andrew Body, but Andrew Body's got it. And I think he's put in the work as a passer. If he's put in the work as a passer, within that offense that he's spoken about knowing with the back of his hand, he's going to have a swag offensive player of the year type season. And if you have, and look, I don't care any type of uh, difficulty football-wise, peewee, high school, college, division one, two, three, the pros, if you have a talented quarterback, you have a great chance to win every single game. Even if your defense ain't that good. You got a chance. You got a chance because he can put up points because he's that dynamic. And so Andrew Body's a future dual threat star at the FCS level. And that's why I think TSU is a dark horse. And the apparent drop-off, I think, in the swag is going to be Prairie View. It's going to be Prairie View, man, and all points State. Start with Alcorn State, man. Like, Alcorn State historically, last decade, were perennial SWAT title contenders. They're not going to be that this year. I, I think JSU, FAMU, Alabama State. Well, no, well, no. They're not in the SWAT East. I don't know why they thought they were. Um, they're not going to be better than Southern Brothers. And in the past, you couldn't say that. In the past, they were usually better than both. Or they were better than one. They're not going to be better than, than Southern too many quarterback concerns. Um, they still have Nico Duffy and KJ Klinsler. I like them as talents. Um, and Fred McNair is probably one of the best coaches in the spot. So it's going to have those guys disciplined and ready to play. And they have a huge test at home against a top 15 FCS opponent in Stephen F. Austin. That's going to be a huge litmus test on what type of all-corn state team we'll see throughout the year. But I think they're in a transition. And I think we're not going to get true Alcorn back until a few years down the line. I don't think this is their year for them. And they were Prairie View. They won the West last year. They're not winning the West this year. And they have too much turmoil there in as well. Eric Dewey's at Southern now. Uh, Juwan Pass graduated. I don't know who's going to be their quarterback. C.J. Dumas is the guy they recruited from the Katy Texas area. I actually like. I actually think he should start. But it sounds like they're going to roll it kindly because he's an upperclassman. They lost Jason Dumas to Southern. They lost um, Cheatham to is it Cheatham Tatum Cheatham to Kansas State. That was their best safety. Their two best defensive players aren't on the team anymore. There's been turmoil going within that 
institution from a money aspect and an athletic aspect, not just in football, but in other sports. Prairie View is predicted to finish last by Hero Sports in the Splat West. I think they actually will. Those are the two teams that are going to have a drop-off. I didn't put Pine Bluff there because Pine Bluff, I also think like Bethune-Cookman, while they thrived in the spring, I thought suffered when everybody else, like FAMU Jackson State, got their ante up about them and got their full team with them. They weren't there. I think Pine Bluff will be a lot better than what they were last year, but I don't think they'll be contenders. I say Prairie View and Alcorn are going to have drop-offs because of where they were last year. Alcorn, last game of the year in the Capital City Classic in Jackson State, was competing for well, they weren't competing for, unfortunately, because the last two games of the year, they're competing for a chance to get into the SWAC Championship. You're not going to see that this year. Prairie View was in the SWAC Championship because they won the SWAC West. You're not going to see that, that, see that this year. I think those are going to be the two well guys it was great to be back on the pod for episode 53 yours truly Kim Bumani. hey man I'm back at it again and I'm ready to grind keep it going keep it continuing on this platform so the viewers and listeners can stay tuned and listen we're going to try to continue to elevate what intel can be down the line next week just hit this like my bad next week look out for Brian McFadden from Legit Sports well not Legit Sports Brian McFadden from Legit Football he's going to be a new guest I have on for episode 54 will talk about the NFL. We'll pretty much probably talk about the preseason since we're going to have, by that time, the first wave of preseason games would have already happened. We're going to give you a breakdown of NFL football. And potentially after that, they hit my boy Blue up to preview college football. Um, like I said, great to be back. This is going to be a great listen for you guys. Um, hope you guys enjoy it. Without further ado, get this out. Peace.